You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Record here. And what it is and what torture relighting and all that good stuff. And then we'll talk about, are you officially announced as a candidate? Yeah, I sent out a press release to that effect just okay. last week. Got and it. it actually made it in, in, oh, that's why I was going to get the WISH interview. Got it. Yeah. All right, cool. Here, we'll hit record. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome to the Chris Spangle Show. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm a little rusty. I haven't done a podcast in a month, so I forgot my intro, forgot everything. But thankfully, we have a returning guest who's going to make it easy on me. And it is my good friend, Andy Horning. He is uh, one of the first candidates that I ever worked for in politics, one of the people that turned me into a libertarian. So you have him to blame. Longtime friend. We've known each other almost 20 years, Andrew Horning. Can you believe it'll it? be actually it since that 20, 2004 campaign started in 2003. Yeah. Uh, I we're there. About I think we are there. I think it's about there. You are also running for Senate here in Indiana. Are you running as a libertarian Republican? Which are you choosing this time? I'm running as a libertarian. I think the Republican experiment did not work out as people had promised me it would. And, you know, I did that. Everybody said, oh, you really ought to run as a Republican. And I blah, blah, blah. Oh, come on. I, if anybody really knew how any of this stuff works, they wouldn't have even ever said that. But I did it. I dutifully did what people told me to do. I tried it twice. I won once. And if only living people were counted, I won that general election, too. And I, I basically proved that running as a Republican, you can win with a whole lot less money than even I had raised as a libertarian. Yeah, that was, I'm not going to do that again. And in fact, if my book is all about why being a Republican, being a Democrat, the best Democrats and Republicans can't fix our problems because our problems transcend the parties, they transcend the candidates, all the people who've been talking about shadow government. And have you read Whitney Webb's book, One Nation Under Blackmail? No, but I'll make a note of it. What's it about? Oh, my. She started, it started off with the Epstein suicide. Okay. She started pulling on threads and following people that she were connected to all of this stuff and following more connections. And, and not just little connections, the father of, the brother of, and the employee of, and going back 120 years when a lot of this I knew already, but she detailed it. It's two volumes set, big, thick volumes, and about how our government blurred the lines between a crime ring and, and government a long time ago when it started working with the mob and when it started, the intelligence services started, it was secret service before it became the CIA and FBI and all of that stuff. And so they started blackmailing politicians right away with sex. Mm. And that sex and drugs became a global network of extortion and blackmail, China, Russia, every country in the world every country in the world. And it's very well detailed. And it's it uses a lot of information we'd heard before. And you probably, most people intuit this anyway, they, especially from the post-Epson. That, that's know. the thing with conspiracy theories is usually they pull together news articles. <laughs> no. Things that are reported already. And then you go, look, all these things are connected. That's why I've never been a big, they are pulling the strings from the top-down guy. I think in general, 
things are pretty well known and pretty out there. It's just that people don't pay attention. I, first, let me say you're the author of Relighting the Torch, Relighting which the Torch. I am 13% of the way through, admittedly, but I have highlighted 18 portions of this. I think it's some of your finest writing. I think you do a great job so far of really getting at the nature of government and explaining what government is and how it undermines how how really the American experiment. And this is something that I'm really interested in talking about on the show moving forward, and you're a great person to start with. Defining the American experiment, explaining what it is, explaining how it got undermined and how we can move forward. I think we're heading into a time where people are not going to just for automatically say, yes, liberal democratic capitalism has been good for us and it has produced all this wealth they're going to look at other models the republicans leaning right democrats leaning left for really more than a century but let's start with the american experiment what torch are you relighting what is the american experiment how do you define it this is a frustrating thing because you actually even use some words that have to be redefined in their original context to make any of this make sense and whenever we're talking about liberal we're talking about government, even in what government is, people have this idea. Now, you say the word government, and they have different ideas, depending on whether they're talking about politics or government, even if it's the same thing. So politics is bad, but government is what we want to get involved in stuff. So I want I want uh, the government to take care of me, but I don't want to get politics involved. And so there's so much confusion in terms of what this actually is that the experiment of the United States really was self-government. And you think about what government really is in a global context. Nature has its own form of government in every cell, every plant, the weather, everything is a kind of government. And if you think about government as being some force that restrains things and so on, the experiment in the United States really, if you want to boil it down to its most elemental form, is can we govern ourselves enough that we can have very little of that other kind of government that has guns and missiles and jails and judges and bombs and drones and all of that stuff. So really the American experiment, forget democracy, forget the the voting, all of that kind of stuff, really, can we govern ourselves enough that we don't need to be governed by a bigger, more massive, scary government like our founders fought to get off their back? What was 1776 all about? People have a lot of wrong ideas about it. It really wasn't about taxation. In fact, they imposed their own kind of taxation right off the bat that was pretty onerous. They even came up with their own fiat currency, that the continentals and wooden nickels and all kinds of stuff that turned out to be incredibly inflationary. They made lots of mistakes. They wanted to be self-governed. And if you read the Declaration of Independence, a lot of it was the king wouldn't let us have our own laws. The king wouldn't, he wouldn't give us British law. He wouldn't give us what we were due as citizens of the crown. And there's only one mention of taxation in the Declaration of Independence, and basically without our permission. And so the idea of self-governance was a big deal. And you read what Locke and all of these guys were writing about at the time, and a lot of it was related to the idea that we can trust ourselves more than we trust the king more than we trust a central authority. So the American experiment, which you got to say by now has pretty much failed, was self-government and minimal 
what we would call government today. So if the American experiment has failed and the idea that a man can govern themselves, women can govern themselves too, not to use gendered language, but yeah. I know they can govern themselves too. Uh, <laughs> but it is, and I see the frustration in a lot of former libertarians, people who hosted libertarian podcasts maybe three years ago who are now moving on to other forms of, we really need to control other people because if we don't, the left is going to control us. Have you abandoned that sort of thinking, or do you still think that we can get back to a place where we can govern ourselves and constitutionalism is a worthy experiment of, of still fighting for? I haven't budged. I haven't budged. So that's what my book is all about. So if the sort of the structure of the book is, I say, what is politics? I define what a constitutional republic is and how it's supposed to work. Uh, if you know, how we went wrong. I spent a lot of time on that. How laws are supposed to work. I have a whole chapter on words and the danger of messing with words. And so all of this book is to try to bring us back to a, really the best ideas in human history. And the best ideas of human history are that, yeah, we can, it has happened. And a few times you look at the Florentine Republic, you look at the United States of America for a little while, in limited, in limited fashion, because it has to be said, we never did the Constitution as intended. We never, right from the beginning, when the ink was still wet, even John Adams was uh, the Alien and Sedition Acts. We've, we've had lots of breaches of constitutional rule of law. But as Jefferson wrote, and I don't have the quote memorized, but something along the line of the constitutions are here for us to use as a as the backstop against aggression. We, we may transgress these things from time to time, but these constitutions are for us to be a touchstone of what we thought was best in us and best in terms of self-government and a way to run a civil society. And if we use those constitutions in that sense, they're still there. The constitutions, Indiana and federal constitutions, are better than what we're doing. So even though they're imperfect, and I do in this book draw some, you know, I have some pretty strong words about things that could have been done better and the things that were just flat wrong in the Constitution, but it's still the best thing anybody's ever agreed to. You can't get 15 people to agree to anything better than this. Given that this is already ours by law, and that everything else is fundamentally in breach of this law, and that we literally have a crime ring, ruling over us right now instead, my hope, let's keep hope and expectations in line here, my expectations are low, but my hopes are always high that we're going to come to our senses. And I see in the rhetoric of people anyway, as I've seen for some time, a growing tide of people saying, I'm sick of this, our government is out of control, these debts are unsustainable, all of this stuff is nuts, I think it's all corrupt, and in fact, we're seeing all kinds of, we're seeing corners and edges of corruption that really are pointing to much, much deeper. I, yeah, it doesn't seem like we all disagree much on the problem. We just disagree on the solution. And some people, a majority of people seem to think that more government and more power and more allowing of, you define government being necessary for two reasons. I don't know if you can recall those to mind, but, you know... What was that? I thought that was a great point. Once people figure that out, why do we go to a solution that's going to make the problem worse? What do you think that is with human nature? 
Well, that's a, a good fundamental question. And it hits at one of the things that I hear every time I run for office. And that I get done talking, I have a discussion with somebody. And it's not that often that I get to have a really good discussion with a voter because you generally get, in, in political campaigns, you don't get much time. But when I do get a little time and somebody agrees with me and say, man, I agree with everything you say. Man, I wish I could vote for you. There, there's this crux where what we say every day and what we do on election day are opposites. And so you've got these guys that say, I've got my M16. I'm going to shoot the government out of my way. No, you're not, because you're not even voting for what you want. And the fact that so many of us are voting on odds and habit and tribe and tribalism is a strong thing with humans. It's just a really idolatry. It's a shame idolatry and sin are like tied to like religious people think, oh, he's going to talk. He's going to start talking about Christ and stuff now. You don't have to. This, the concepts are universal. The idea of sin in our experience is if we come up with our own rules, we're going to break them. Our own rules. We can make up our rules on the spot and we'll break them on the spot. And that's, that kind of sin is very human. And the idolatry part, where you think about what we do with flags and anthems, and nobody goes into church and puts their hand on their heart, and you look at this, some idol, and say, I pledge allegiance, I promise to obey this thing. Nobody does that. And yet we do that. Am I getting myself in trouble here? No, but yeah. I think we're at, I, one of my questions for you, you, in my mind, founded the Tea Party. I know some may take exception with that. I think they're trying to recreate the magic. There was a property tax revolt over at the State House this past Saturday. July 4th, 2007, you hold this rally with 500 people that show up to the governor's mansion protesting property taxes. It ends up setting off a revolutionary summer across the state of Indiana because property taxes had doubled, tripled, quintupled in some cases. And it became a flashpoint in a mayor's race in Indianapolis, and this no-name Republican ended up winning, and the well-funded Democrat that was a shoe-in ended up losing, which some people think that may be happening again here in Indianapolis. Our friend Abdul ran for mayor, unfortunately did not hit the mark in the primary, thanks to a guy that spent $3 million. But I really think you having that Tea Party, which led to other kind of Tea Parties, which it's not out of realm of the possibility that Rick Santelli in Chicago may have seen some of this stuff, who's the one that's credited with going, we need a tea party on CNBC. We made national news with that. He did, yeah. It really oh, set it off. Oh, you did. We, yeah. When we closed off the closed off Meridian Street with all the people, and it may have been more than 500, because it was a big mob at the governor's mansion. And we made national news then, so a lot of people saw it. And I heard from people all over the country then after that. And that, and then you have the Glenn Becks and everybody with we surround them, and then evolving from there, and the official Tea Party. And I had a lot of hope about it because it was let's return to the principles of constitutionalism, let's return to the principles of our founding, let's stop spending. When we're looking back, has it been fifteen years? Since the Tea Party, <laughs> when you look back at the legacy of that Tea Party and what the Republican Party has become, where that Tea Party mentality led to Trumpism, which has now landed at Christian nationalism, I think that's where you were going, right? And I have some of the same concerns in the melding of Christianity and conservatism 
and confusing that idolatry of trying to get America back to a Christian nation instead of the true purpose of Christianity, which is to save people's souls to get them to heaven through Jesus Christ. I'm really concerned about that, and I do think that a lot of it had its roots in the Tea Party. And I think it's also... So I don't know what my question is. I'm just making an observation because one thing that I think when you ran again in, was it 2010? Hell, pick a year and I'll hit the number. You could go to Tea Party rallies and you were speaking the same language as a lot of those people. You were speaking like I was from a Christian perspective, but libertarianism that didn't try to force its morality. And that seems to be fundamentally different where the state of Indiana is. How have you worked through that and where you think that'll play in Indiana and how that'll work out, considering your message hasn't changed? Frankly, I've not had any luck. And the, the idea that what Christ came here to do was not political, it had political effects, obviously. And people point to Christianity as what caused the collapse of a lot of slaving and a lot of kingdoms and that kind of freedom had its flowering. There's a new book called Dominion that kind of this atheist writes a book about the effects of Christianity and ends up appreciating all of the benefits of egalitarianism and equalities and freeing slaves, like you said it, and the domino effect. Because just, I think the Imago Dei, basically, like every person is worth dignity and respect and liberty, had massive effects on society. But that gets right back to what we were talking about right at the beginning. So you think about what it is that Christianity actually does to a person, if it's a true belief. It will make you a self-governed person and that you have a higher power than politics. And you're looking to a better end than soup lines and social security and single class basketball or whatever. You think, you know, what Christianity did Putting it in the in the context of the founding fathers, a lot of the founding fathers were not Christians. And as Jefferson cut up the Bible and made up his own, literally cut and paste. Uh, I get these miracles out of here. Yeah, and George Washington even left before communion, and so he. Yeah, there is a lot of debate whether the founders really were Christian or not. A lot of these guys probably were not, and a lot of them were deists and so on. But they all agreed on one thing: if there was a book in the house, it was probably a Bible. And there was a commonality of behavioral morals that was fairly well understood. And that sort of groundwork was necessary. And the founders articulated this in many different ways. And that if we don't have this kind of moral society, this constitution isn't going to work. There is a Christian backdrop. What we're really talking about is a fundamentally secular government. Government is a secular thing. And even in the Bible, you think about what was the story in 1 Samuel 8, verses 6 to 20, when the the Israelites were asking Samuel, we need a king to go before us and fight our battles for us. And Samuel was, of course, upset, and he went to God, and God said, Samuel, they're not turning against you. They're turning against me as their God. So go ahead, give them a king, and tell them what comes along with a human king. And then there's that long litany of he's going to take 10% of this. He's going to take your sons and daughters and make them go before his chariots and be his slaves. And the idea, big long list of things that come with the human king. And did we learn from that? No, we didn't. And you think, what are the best examples of kings in, in, in the Bible? David, who had a guy killed to get his wife. So the idea that we are supposed to have 
in fact, I guess I should mention too, this, it bugs me, how many people think that the tetradrachm there, the tribute penny story of the Bible, where Christ holds up a coin and says, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and what is God, and give unto God what is God's. It's obvious when he's holding up this Roman coin, it had these deified, one of them was a newly deified Tiberius Caesar on one side. And Christ you know, might as well have been saying, I got your Caesar, you know, where I want him. And what does the whole Bible say belongs to God? Everything. So that's why you know, the Pharisees turned away without anything else to say. When Christians so numbly give unto Caesar everything and say, we need government to do God's work because God is not really able to do this stuff that we can do with missiles. We need to get involved and have this. No, that's not how this is supposed to work. So fundamentally, what the Constitution is all about is a leash on secular power, not in any kind of going back to the judges sort of order, but at least with the understanding that we were supposed to be a moral people. And that's a difficult thing to define, I know. And all laws legislate morality. That's just a fundamental thing that whatever the current government is, they've got their own idea of what morality is. But the founder's idea was there is a specific form of morality that was necessary to make the constitutions work. And that specific form of morality was not like the like what we have today. If you see something, say something, snitch on your neighbor, do this kind. No, it was if your neighbor's barn burns down, you're going to help them put it back up again. If you see somebody who's hungry, you are going to help them out. You're not going to ask the king or your governor or somebody to take money from everybody. And and this, it came up many times in the early United States. And in fact, we had basically the model for, I don't know, like a pre-Obamacare right from the very beginning when we had a service, the beginning of the National Health Service that was for the Navy, for people in the Navy. And there were debates on how far do we, are we going to let this go? Are we going to extend this? They didn't call it welfare back then, but are we going to be taxing everybody for the benefit of a few? Are we going to start doing this thing? And they initially were pushing back a lot, but you can see how these things get incrementally perverted. And similarly, like with the 18th Amendment, that was the first time our government ever had constitutional authority to deny the ability to manufacture, what was the actual wording, manufacture, transport, and sell intoxicating liquors. And it was only intoxicating liquors. It had nothing to do with consumption. It didn't say you couldn't consume it. It didn't say you couldn't buy it. And that was the only time our government ever had that authority to ban the manufacture, transportation, and sale of anything. The 21st Amendment removed that. Even when it comes to intoxicating liquors, which was all that 18th Amendment was about, we added, during the time of Prohibition, we added that, no, you can't buy this stuff, and no, you can't drink it, and by the way, we're going to poison alcohol supplies, and we're going to kill 10,000 of you as a result. These things get added on, and then when the 21st Amendment wiped out all of that authority, suddenly government has the authority to regulate the sale of cabbage and shoes and everything now without amending the Constitution. So what happened was once we started taking liberties with the, the wording of the Constitution, 
where the Ninth and Tenth Amendments are really fundamental to our understand, proper understanding of the Constitution, where we have all rights that are not specifically taken away. But the Tenth Amendment is very clear in saying that the government has no powers that are not specifically granted. So where people are now saying Constitution doesn't say I can't do this. No, it does say you can't do that because it never said you can. And right. that's where, that's a fundamental screw up that we made a long time ago where we started thinking that if the Constitution didn't say something, that there was something vague about it. There's nothing vague about it. If it isn't in there, it's forbidden. And that's even in the Indiana Constitution's Article 1, Section 25 is a little bit peculiarly worded, but it's very clear that no law shall be passed, the taking effect of which shall be made to depend upon any authority except as provided in this Constitution. I like the way that wording works in the Indiana Constitution, even though it's, it sounds a little funny. It's, it makes it clear that passing a law does not grant authority. The authority has to be there first, and the authority comes from the Constitutions. And if the Constitutions are not amended to, to grant the authority to write that law, it's not law. And so we, we are now in this absurd position where our legislators are not even writing most of our laws. It's mostly unelected bureaucrats. Yeah, it's, it's corporations, it's lobbyists, it's, it's, te- it's college-age kids who are working in congressional offices. Yeah, but 30 times as many laws are written by FDA, CMS, you know, that these uh, executive agencies. So bureaucrats, we don't even know their name. I've worked in healthcare pretty much my whole life. Product development mostly, but clinical too. And this industry has not have that many laws that are written by legislators, actually. Almost all of it is CMS, FDA, all of the health regulating agencies that tell us what things we can build, how much uh, it determines how much it's going to cost us, of course, too, because there are so many regulations on making medical devices and medical software. And that's why we've lost a lot of jobs to overseas, where most health companies and a lot of the software is in the Netherlands, it's in Italy, it's in places that have lower productivity. And we used to think had it more socialist government, that they have less regulation than we have. And until recently, until the EU came out with their newest regulations, we were in a serious deficit with Europe, even <laughs> when it comes to the, the ability to bring products to market. And this is all in breach of the Constitution because our government, as I just said, once the 21st Amendment was gone, our government has no constitutional authority to in any way affect the sale, transportation, consumption, any of that stuff of anything. It just was never granted. Even when they're talking about the what goes on between the states, that was assumed to be court cases. When you think about abortion, that somebody goes to another state to get an abortion. If there was a dispute and it was between states, it would be handled in the courts as an individual case, and it would be adjudicated and judged and sorted out one way or t'other in court, not in legislation, because there is no authority to do this by legislation, but the authority to adjudicate is in the judicial branch. And we, have, we don't understand that design because most people have not only not read the constitutions— We've been lied to about what they mean and what they say and who's got authority over them. And constitutional scholars putting air quotes around that, they're always talking about court cases. They don't talk about the Constitution's words. So they say, I said in 1936, that this yada, 
And therefore, no, that's not the way it's supposed to work. We, the people, are supposed to own the Constitution. Yeah, we've be, we've ended up in a, a Byzantine-like state with just too many different moving parts and pipes and... We're <laughs> Yeah. Hey, we need w- with our custody situation. Hey, we we have a question. We want to. We have this idea. We'll get an answer back to you. It'll cost you six hundred bucks because we need to go look up all the different statues. And you're just like, I think. I, I guess what are what are like the, the first couple steps in getting back to relighting the torch and getting back to a place where th- this system works again. I'm making that presumption that I think you and I both probably think that it can be reformed, and I'm not a, 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 catast- a catastrophic libertarian who's just, look, let's collapse it all. People will just magically choose liberty if we just collapse the entire system and deflate the dollar. But I take the Eugene Debs view that 100 years from now, people, we can move society back, just like Eugene Debs in 1910, 1912, 1908 had these ideas and we can implement these three or four things and five things and here's my 10 point plan and lo and behold Barack Obama fulfilled most of his vision if you go back and read his speeches in 1912 I look at the long game and I think we can move that direction so if you were to put your Eugene Debs list together and maybe it's written in the book like I said I'm not there yet fantastic book I recommend it I just am a slow reader what are those few things that we need to do to get society reoriented. Actually, my last chapter, other than the conclusion chapter, is all about how do we fix this. So I've got a whole bunch of proposals, things that, you know, that we should be doing. But fundamentally, what do we want to do? We have to want, if we want constitutional rule of law, it's actually very simple. It's crazy simple, because the laws are already there. That's what's legal and everything else is illegal. We have the power of peaceful revolution. Nobody ever puts it in those terms. They say it's, this is about hiring politicians. No, it's not. We've got, yeah, there are politicians everywhere. They don't have elections. Politicians are like gravity. They're just going to come. They're going to pop up more like weeds. They're just going to pop up. And it's our job to cut them down, pull them up by the roots and do something about it. We're supposed to be firing these guys. So elections are about the power of re- peaceful revolution so that we don't have to have that other kind of revolution that our founders had. If you think in the simplest terms, we are not voting for constitutional people at all. Nobody, even the best Republicans right now, like Thomas Massey or Rand Paul, none of them have done anything like we're going to, like in in my book, I have ideas for like sunset resolutions, constitutional restoration, where Everything is not constitutional. You have 10-year sunset and goes away. And you have to vote things back. Everything is going to go after 10 years. And then the idea that we are going to have resolutions that even say, hey, we're going to do the constitutions. We haven't done that. And I guess maybe I should just read. Let me get to this first. Let me bring this up. Because it's really simple, but we have to want to do it. And we have to vote for people who would do it. And this could work at the state level or the federal level or both. Well, that should work at both. Yeah, you can get Andy's book. I'll pad for time here. You can get Andy's <laughs> book at Amazon. That's where I got it. I got the Kindle version. You can also buy it on paperback version. And he's working on an audiobook version, which I'm very relieved about. I I love a good audiobook and spent. I got a hardcover version too. Yep. Yeah, a hardcover yep. too. All right, look at you. You also just wrote another book, which was well, that, a fiction book. 
Yeah, that was before that. So that was my first book. And that that's all about what, what a peaceful, wonderful anarchy would be like. Yeah, so um, check yeah. that out when you're purchasing all the Andy Horning books. But uh, <laughs> did you find the section? I did. All right. I did. This would be a federal resolution. You could do the same thing in this state. And it's short. Whereas the plain wording of the 10th Amendment of the Constitution for the United States of America is binding law, be it resolved that no federal agency program or international treaty that depends upon authority not granted by the Constitution for the United States of America shall be valid. Any agency, law, program, or international treaty transcending authority specifically granted by the Constitution for the United States of America is null and void. Unconstitutional laws, agencies, programs, and treaties have created both problems and dependencies that will take time to rectify. Therefore, all unconstitutional federal powers, delegations, laws, programs, treaties, and entities that cannot be immediately nullified must be phased out within no more than 10 years. Now, this is a, a workable plan, I think, unlike what Adams and Jefferson in 1789-99, they wrote the Kentucky and Virginia resolutions. And they were similar to this. They were basically saying, we're going to dissolve the union if you don't back off and stick to the Constitution. Article 1, Section 1 of the Texas Constitution is very plain. And that they basically are saying, we're going to be part of this union only as long as a Republican form of government is, I don't remember the wording, but basically is in all the states. So it was known early on that nullification was the solution and that that was the, the remedy for an unconstitutional government. Our founders wrote a lot about that, and especially the people, the anti-federalists. At the state level, federal level, that hasn't been done since Jefferson and Adams. Nobody has actually even said, let's go back to the Constitution and here are the words that we need to say to do it. So this is a resolution. I've also got an amendment that we could propose to put in there. The idea is we first have to want it, and then we have to vote for people who would give it to us. It's just like when people are asking for term limits, and say, I'm going to vote for this incumbent who's been in there for 47 years because he says he's going to give me term limits. No, he's not. That's the funniest thing about Republicans is that in the Tea Party, they're like, yeah, term limits. Now, Thomas Massey ain't quitting. <laughs> Rand Paul is not retiring. I'm glad about that, but I'm just saying, remember those pledges. I've got the Tea Party books. I'm going to read them this summer and see where we're at 15 years on. And that's, it's really just, we get what we vote for. And you know how I feel about election fraud. It happens. And even look, LBJ's Box 13 scandal, 200 people voting in alphabetical order for J LBJ. It happens. And these things are known. People go to jail every election cycle for election fraud. It happens. But you ask voters how they vote. And in general, you can see very plainly that we have what we have chosen. And we could choose different anytime we want to. But we keep choosing the same thing over and over again, expecting something better to happen. And that is, of course, dumb, even though Einstein never said what people think he said about doing the same thing over and over again, getting different results is the definition of insanity. It's a true enough statement and that we keep doing the same stupid two-party system thing, even though our founders warned us specifically against that. And they were so strong against political parties in general that they made a lot of this stuff, for instance, the two-party system as we have it now, unconstitutional by both federal and state constitutions. And that was the basis for my first lawsuit against the state of Indiana. And I'm party to another suit, a similar design for 
ballot access and how unfair and unconstitutional, because both 14th Amendment, the federal constitution and every state constitution has some wording about equality under law. And we certainly don't have that in our ballot access and partisan laws. And it's we're not allowed as libertarians to have precinct committee people. We can't get on the same commissions and committees. And you think how important that is that there is this imprimatur of legitimacy given to this whole two-party system just by these laws they wrote for themselves to exclude everybody else. And then that means that we don't get the news coverage the other guys get. We don't get invited to debates, forums, and events. And it's it's a killer. I did, even just on WIBC today, I was hearing Tony Cass was talking about we need to have more of these voices heard and so on. And is it really is anybody really advocating that we really do have fairness under law and that we really do hear all of these voices? And in that same broadcast, he was talking about we have to have limitations. You have to have you have to have some guidelines as to who can be in debates. And so some people have to be in, excluded from debates. And what are the criteria? how much money they raise and, <laughs> and how many donors like the Republican party is now saying you have to have so many individual donors. And as opposed to having a few big donors, you have to have a bunch of little donors. And so there, these criteria have nothing to do with being right or being constitutional. Right. Having, and one of the most damning criticisms I would have for our political system right now is that we vote for people not by whether they're telling the truth or whether they've ever been right, but it's the opposite. The people who tell the truth and are right, they, they're the ones we call losers and fringe, and, and they can't win an election. And I've even had people tell me, oh, you're too nice. What? You're just too decent of a human being to be elected <laughs> to office, Andy. I've always what? thought that. <laughs> what? Yeah, I guess that's the funny part about the populism of talk radio, which really, like, all the people who run the Republican Party and all these Twitter accounts and everybody, they all just sound like Larry from the East Side calling in on Abdul in 2004. Oh, Donald Trump is just talk a talk radio caller. And that's a funny part of populism is that they talk out of both sides of their mouth. There's never, you can never, there's no yeah, we should have everybody in the debate, but then we should also do the thing that's going to benefit the people that I like and hurt the people that I don't. And it doesn't make any sense. I wondered before before we finish, go ahead. I, I guess I should, in defense of the people who do this, I do have to say that I never used to be at all, and in, in, I like Italian sports cars, I like Alfa Romeos. But there is this kind of thing that when you learn enough about something, you know, I started getting a magazine because I like the tools and techniques of hot rodders, but I started reading these hot rod magazines. And you get to a point where you say, you know what, I like hot rods now. And so I think there's this thing where people learn about the two-party system as it is right now, and they become experts in it. And they know the people, they know the processes, yeah. they get so involved and in, in, in knowledgeable in it that they... This they don't see anything else. This is I like this, and this is the way it has to be, and that's it's wrong, but I get it. I was I went to a talk. Dan Miller is a, a local guy who runs a kind of a cool concept. He does consulting for business executives, but he uses history, and he gave a talk about the upcoming election and four elections that kind of had parallels. And he talked about that 1800 election with Adams and Jefferson, and he talked about the fact that people, it was, they chose what they knew, even though they didn't like it, because the unknown was too great. Because at that point of the Republic, 
Washington is dead. That stability is gone. You have Adams and Jefferson and the just the new media around the time just calling them all sorts of names and you don't know what's real and it's very confusing as a time. And they could have just ejected the whole American experiment and constitution at that point. The Republic's not that old at that point. In 1800, it's less than 10 years. But the fear of unknowns kept them into that binary choice, Mm -hmm. which I thought that was a really good parallel for where we're at right now, where people, yeah, there's always going to be your Sora Bamaris who go, look, monarchism is a better way. We need to have Orban-style government to protect our culture on the right. And then you've got the Bernie Sanders on the left going, look, a socialist republic and the a la Sweden is exactly what we need. But that fear of the unknown keeps people... And maybe in some ways, Andy, that kind of helps with us constitutional Republicans. Hey, you, look, it made us the most powerful nation in the world. It can do that again. Yeah. It's what our founders gave us came from history. These guys studied Cicero. It's not like this was in a historically ignorant backdrop. It's very rare when smart people get involved in politics. And we had some really smart people getting involved in politics. And so what they did is they basically took what they felt were proven ideas and that the it's not a coincidence that we had a whole bunch of smart people at that time, like Adam Smith and later you had Bastiat and all of these people. And there was a period where Austrian economics was evolving and it was turning into, it wasn't Austrian economics yet, but the idea that that economics was more than just money. It was more than just numbers. It was how people interact with each other in a very fundamental human way. The way we make decisions, the the way we evaluate any transaction. This was really smart stuff. And that sort of seed of what we would now call capitalism and free free markets was, it wasn't exactly revolutionary because they had seeds of this all throughout history that they studied. And so they had already seen how when silver was discovered in what is now the Czech Republic and what that did for common people to have this some kind of money they could hoard as opposed to bits of paper that could be issued and withdrawn and inflated and deflated and so on. Things like that make a huge difference when they the Spanish doubloons and the way these bits of metal came to be a liberating thing for people because they could grab them, they could hoard them, they could hide them. Then they could use them for transactions in ways that the continental script did not work. So what our founders were actually issuing with the first state banks and so on, they had, before we had the Constitution, we had lots of experiments that failed already. And we had a lot of smart people that knew why they failed. And so we had already a lot of churning going on in economics and politics that led to the Constitution And it led to what became what my book is all about. They didn't know that I was going to write this book. But the idea that all of the stuff that went into this was historic. It was historical, not only ancient history, but recent history. And it was proven out in ways that we could see even today, wherever people do bits of this stuff. When what they call the soft revolution in the Czech Republic, the old Czechoslovakia, when, you know, it happened under Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore, We've had several times where people take bits of this kind of economic and personal freedom and they apply it. It works every time. 
And we've had situations where you have the opposite happen, where it happened there was a time in Argentina was the fifth biggest economy in the world. And they started going towards socialism and they fell apart. We saw what happened Venezuela with all of their oil and stuff. They were rich as heck for a while. And then they said, we're going to socialize the oil industry and see what happens. The rich people stayed rich. We should add that. The rich people stayed rich. It's everybody else that got real poor. And that's a good point because a lot of people, it's it's not a lot of the rhetoric is that, oh, everybody gets poor under socialism. No. (laughs) Hillary Clinton's not going to be poor. No. (laughs) You You and I are going to be poor. The idea that we can ever have, I love the idea of, my first book is about anarchy. And, And I love the idea of anarchy, of having no government to speak of. They had a king that, that really didn't do anything, and, and they knew it, and it was fun. And it's a funny book, and it's supposed to be. But the point I was trying to make is that you have a government like that. It's going to be facing all kinds of troubles. And so this this island of Excelsior is placed on a planet where everybody else is authoritarian and militaristic and selfish and stupid and short-sighted and all of that stuff. And so I said it in the context of the 1987 stock crash, the Black Monday and there's a lot of history. A lot of it's true. And of course, I twisted some of the truth. There aren't these kind of dragons in real life. The idea that, that there are some things that humans just do repetitively. We have a follow the alpha the species default state. And it is our default to, to, to follow a king or to bow down to a potentate. And unless we have better ideas, that's where we go. And frustration really is that we have these constitutions based on a much better idea that we can be self-governed. We don't need to have all of this big government and we can push it aside anytime we want to. And so the whole last chapter of my book, whether it's talking about nullification or like simple things like one subject at a time, read the bill, write the laws, those things that are, have even been proposed by other people before, free competition and currency. There are a lot of incremental things, but fundamentally, We have to decide what we want, and we have to actually choose it. That's where things go go off the rails, because anywhere you look in social media, you will hear people saying, we need to make these politicians do this, and we ought to have a law that, and that we should make politicians eat dog poop. No, you're not going to do that. You're voting for people that do exactly what you say is wrong. And as long as you keep voting for all of this stuff that's bad, you're going to get bad and it's simple but we don't want to we don't want to and i suppose it's natural to we don't want to admit we've been screwing up yeah we don't yeah. want to admit that that what we do actually matters we don't want to be responsible and accountable for our choices and the fact that we have not been making wise ones speaking and, of that i'm sorry to cut you off but i think the seduction right now, I think the culture wars, I'm interested in your take on culture war stuff, because oh. 2008, 2010, Andy, I would have said, you know, LPIN, you were one of the more conservative cultural warriors, right? If there's a libertarian that's a culture warrior, maybe it's you, right? Now, everybody's held their tongue on a lot of social issues, and there was a lot of truce. And that seems to have been ripped open, and you're just not wading into the waters and terrified now, Andy, even though you've not changed a single thing. I'm, I find the culture wars are very seductive to a lot of libertarians that I know, conservatives, right-leaning people, into giving up their small government credentials in the way that it, you know a lot of 
probably 88 Ron Paul voters suddenly turned into Warhawks in 2003. That's what this feels like to me in a lot of ways, is that our politics are conditioned in much the same way as it was in 2003. That was foreign policy. This is social issues. What is your take on the culture wars? And as a candidate, how will you wade into that? If you well, I, I was hoping you weren't going to ask me this one, because that's really tough, especially when you think about how many libertarians, good friends of mine, by the way, have really done an about face where it's not equality under law. Now we have to have special consideration for special situations. For instance, we know that it's really bad to give car keys and a bottle of booze and a gun to a six-year-old. But because Why? Because we think in those circumstances that a six-year-old does not have agency, that this is a a child who has not yet developed this sense of, in fact, one of the things about why, why armies all over the world and through history have really liked a certain age span, not just because of physical strength, but because neurologically speaking, we've learned not too long ago that our brains rewire themselves in late teens through early 20s, and we don't really have a very well-developed sense of risk and reward. And so our idea of assessing risk as a 20-year-old is not the same as it would be when we're 14 or when we're 35. And there is that window where we're much more likely to be macho and foolish and all of that stuff. And younger than that, we just haven't, we haven't learned that much about who we are We're going through all kinds of hormonal changes that are changing our bodies and our brains, by the way. And so I'm thinking about from a medical perspective now. I went to a a conference not too long ago where there's a whole poster session and several people talking about the new medical problems associated with transgender drugs and that they're more likely to have stroke, heart attack. Once you start taking these blockers and especially when you start actually doing transitions, you will be a medical patient for the rest of your life. And people who have regretted their decisions and have tried to go back find that there are all kinds of problems with that too. And so you think, okay, what is different now versus giving car keys, alcohol, gun, drugs to kids? We, we know that's bad. You don't do that kind of stuff to kids. Why now do we think it's totally okay for them to change their bodies when this is, I have nothing to say about what adults do with their bodies. I don't care. I don't care what they do in their bedrooms. It's not, it's certainly not a political issue. Government should have nothing to do with it. But we do have an issue when kids are being taken advantage of. And there is something to the idea of grooming. We know it when it comes to the sex trade. And we've been thinking this is something we have to fight. And we've never really solved the problems of, obviously, sex trade still happens. And in fact, it's a flourishing business. And when we started talking about Epstein and how how much of this is related to child pornography and child prostitution and taking advantage of kids, why all of a sudden is it starting to be okay to even talk about man-boy societies and very strange. Uh, so, and I, I have a preference for young people. What's wrong with that? There's a lot wrong with that because we're taking advantage of children who need to be protected. And so when we're talking about the valid roles of government, there are not that many things that government should do at all. One of them, I think we should 
in, even in terms of environment. Our government should protect unowned shared resources like a creek, air, things like that, that somebody could pollute. They can pour dump chemicals into a stream. It ends up going to somebody else's property. That's bad. But kids, children are a special resource that have a tendency to be abused and have always have had a tendency to be abused by parents even. And it's a shame we have to think that way because in most respects, I would like to be able to leave people alone in their families and in their homes. But when kids are getting abused, that ends up being a cultural problem for everybody. And that's where when we're talking about some of what's going on in our culture wars right now, especially like in public, I was going to say public school, government schools. (laughs) Spoken Um, like a dad that homeschooled. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a reason for that. We didn't know how bad it was getting until it was really only Hark when he went off to college and he started reporting back what he was, what he was being fed in college that we're like, I had no idea. And there've been so many things I predicted for years and this. I've been like a Cassandra for many years saying, this is going to happen, this is going to, yeah, and these all these things happen. This is something I did not predict. I did not know just how fast we were going to go from gay rights, which I'm totally, everybody should have equal rights, everybody, no exception. But we're not talking equal rights anymore. We're pretty far from How that. much, because I wonder how much of it is because we, I, libs of TikTok is controversial. But they're controversial because they take what people are actually saying and you can see it and then you go, that's not right. And I wonder how much of it, it, like on a scale of magnitude of like, how much of the therapist that I saw saying we need to have compassion, like we do need to have compassion and then lock up people who have child sex attraction or whatever she called it. It was, I think it was MAPS was the term. But I don't know what it stood for. I call it pedophilia. Uh, But it was this therapist who works with that population who's trying to normalize the idea. I can't imagine that's a mainstream thing at any point. And the argument that I we have a lot of debates in our group chat because I'm trying to work this stuff out. And how do we talk about it in public and have reasonable conversations with it? Like, to me, children are just a line, right? Like, I am the third person in history to host a podcast about transitioning with creating Maya with my friend Maya when she transitioned. There were a lot of regrets there on their end, right? And this was a 30-something-year-old adult. It's very difficult for me to say that a 14-year-old can have the agency to have... But then again, I don't know if I want to pass laws for that kind of stuff, right? I'm just... Too, liberta- too libertarian. So it's like uncomfortable to look at some of the laws that get passed and overriding parental agency, but then also it's just an insane thing to say that your kid should transition as at 14 and be sterilized and they're able to make that choice. They may change their mind. Like that's a permanent decision. I watched it happen to my best friend and the complications that came with that. Those were very heavy, difficult times for that friend. And but then I, I love the J.R. Tolkien podcast by Barry Weiss or J.R. Tolkien, wrong person, J.K. Rowling, okay. uh, J.K. Rowling, the witch trials of J.K. Rowling, because like they have a teenager that transitioned in there and said it saved my life. So they really did a great job of kind of covering this at all angles that I'll never be able to execute in the way that they did. But it's such a complex issue. And that's, I think for me as an old school libertarian, Andy, that's why I asked this question, like, 
It seemed to be cut and dry. Government does X, that's bad. It's a little bit different. It's a little more complicated once we get into areas where every law that you pass has very real consequences. You're the first person that I ever... This is life and death stuff when it comes to passing laws. You pass a law that says X, you, you could be condemning someone else based on your own beliefs to something else. So I wondered where you came down on it, because maybe not just this specific issue, but just the culture wars in general. That, that's, that takes us again back to what we first started talking about. What was the presupposition of our founders when they wrote the Constitution? That we would have some kind of baseline morality, that we would agree that this is right and this is wrong. And if you have that, then you don't really need nearly as much. In fact, just put it in another sense. Our legal system used to be much more heavily dependent upon juries. We have a lot of trials that should be jury trials that are not anymore. But the idea was supposed to be that we have a jury that decides a lot of things. And that jury would be made up of people that the assumption was had at least some common understanding of what was right and what was wrong. And we know from history that juries have often been horrifically wrong, especially during the Jim Crow and slavery eras, when there's no excuse for what happened in a lot of cases in American history. And that's what makes it difficult. We've never done it right. And when it comes to something like this now, when we're talking about the difference between a few years ago when, and it was just a few years ago, when we were talking about accept who you are. If you're, whatever your situation is, if you're bald, fat, ugly, stupid, whatever, you should be able to be an individual to yourself and appreciated by yourself and by others for who you are. And you think about how we feel about dogs. I love dogs, but they're, I don't want to kiss one. And it's not like they're not human. They have their own thing and they're loving and they're loyal and they live every day like it's special. We don't do that. And they greet you in a certain kind of way and all of this stuff. And so we think of dogs in a way that I wish we, we could do with humans and that we could appreciate each other. We could, we could, I like you. You're not like me, but I like yeah, you. We, uh, I think what you're saying is we don't have the tribalism for other animals like that we do for humans who aren't animals who have the image of God with built within them, but we have this anger towards other people that we just don't quite have for yes. like a dog. It's, I think what you're saying, right? It's, and that's where I was going. And it's, one of, it's a difficult concept because what we're really talking about is a very fundamental aspect of humans where we judge each other and we have to judge each other in, in certain respects. So if you're in a... What is it that makes us scared when we're in a dark alley and we see somebody coming towards us? We make snap judgments about what somebody looks like. And if they've got a lot of tattoos and piercings, we're thinking, oh, this guy's a mess. Or if it's a big, tough-looking black guy, we we start to get afraid because we have this stereotypical image of what black, big, black, strong guys are like. And all of this is unfair, and yet it's very human. And in a jury where a lot of court cases are decided still, we're still dependent on what people think in terms of appearances. And I've heard these things in this trial. He's had a rough upbringing. And so I'm going to make the following conclusions based on that. And we're often wrong. So when we're talking right now about what our cultures, there really isn't much of a culture war on each side. So we've divided ourselves up. 
And what we have is like one side agrees that this is absolutely right. One side agrees that this is absolutely wrong. And there's no commonality upon which we can really adjudicate this. And that makes it really difficult. In my case, I have a hard time imagining that it really does save a child's life if they're eight years old. And maybe when they're in their teens and later, I don't have an age bracket that I can actually work on and say that this is science. But I can say from science that just in terms of the way human brains work and the way hormones work, that eight years old is too young to be making decisions that are going to change your body for the rest of your life. You haven't started to know about how many tomboys grew up to be very feminine women, how many boys that that played with dolls ended up being macho men. You don't know. These things can be very malleable. So so this is because I go back and forth on it. We go back to the principle of self-government, the Constitution and self-government kind of curing us of these culture war issues. And I know this is controversial to say, but what about trusting a parent? I know there are examples of people fast-tracking their kids through transition surgeries. I know, but that doesn't seem to be the norm. What about trusting experts at John Hopkins University and therapists that work within these therapists? And yes, I know therapists that work in these populations are pre are biased and maybe not pushing back as much as they could. But at the end of the day, where is the line for you and I to get involved through government force in making decisions for other people? Isn't the kind of the concept of self-government is you've got to let you've got to trust that other people are making good decisions. Absolutely. And that's where this is difficult, because as a federal politician, it's easy. That's why I like running for federal office, because (laughs) I could generally say I'm staying out of this. It's not my business. It's that's not a federal issue at the state level. Things can get a lot more tricky. And that's and even at the local issue, when you're talking about where these cases are actually judged. So if a child is a child ends up in school with bruises all over their body, it's often the school district, local people who end up making decisions about whether this is right or wrong. And I think that's where it really ought to have it ought to be. But we've had where it gets difficult in my mind is institutionally we've been so corrupted where going back to the Epstein thing, And what happens in our schools and what people have been trained in institutions, and we're talking institutions of science, too, like the Academy of Sciences in in psychology and medical science that are now saying, no, this is a real thing, or the court case where the judge did say, no, this is a gender identity thing is a real thing. And the Florida, was it the Florida? No, Tennessee law got overturned because this is now not just a individual decision. This is entire agencies of both government and like quasi-government organizations that are working with government schools that have decided that this is a thing and that we're going to teach kids this stuff. We're going to be showing them videos about it. It's not. Yeah, they've made the moral decision. It's like you can't legislate morality, but you're legislating your morality and then saying our side can't legislate our morality, but you're legislating morality. So it's, it's an insane position. I've often thought it from trying to be sympathetic. I do understand how a lot of movies show like men and women kissing in, in public. And, uh, and in fact, one of my favorite movies I rewatched not too long ago, Forbidden Planet, but had these uh, 1958 and all of the men were like macho. And there's one woman in this movie and they're all kissing on this girl. And it was like 1958. 
There is an entirely different idea about what's appropriate for men and women to do. And it used to be, it seemed appropriate for men to grab women and just give them a kiss. And the woman was supposed to think, oh, gee, yeah, I'm a woman. Look who I work for. The Me Too movement has been largely good for my workplace. <laughs> and we have adapted from boobs and beer to making fun of each other in a way that respects everybody. Yeah. Is- and so I, I get that. I get the idea that we have never done anything correctly, ever. As a species, we screw up everything. And look back and when people started complaining about sex education in public school at all, and that's when it was heterosexual sex education, talking about giving out contraceptives and things in classrooms and so on. And people thought, what a slippery slope this is. I don't know. We've never done anything correctly. And that one of the things I say in my book, in fact, is that that's just the way we are. We will just, we keep screwing up. Nothing lasts forever with humans. We have a 100% failure rate when it comes to our governments. And that's what, the, frankly, the Constitution was supposed to be that touchstone where at least we would have a legal framework by which we could say federal government isn't supposed to do this. So the federal side is easy. What does the state constitution say? And a lot of state constitutions have gotten so badly twisted that it does become a lot more difficult. Like for instance, the oh, a lot of the constitutions written before the Civil War basically were written in such a way that in order to become states, they had to say, we will never leave the Union. We, we submit ourselves to you. And it's, some of it's horrific. And in, in those cases, it is very equivocal what is protected at all by their constitutions. And maybe nothing is because it's, they're so wishy-washy. Even like the Texas Constitution is a long, torturous thing, which has been amended so many times that every time they say something like, we have the right to a gun, unless we take it away. They, they just added all these modifiers to things. And, I and then there's the damn Indiana Constitution with the Owenites putting in public education, those bastards. <laughs> yeah. We guarantee public education in this communist state of ours. Yeah. Even if, we did, even if we did it like the Owenites wrote it, it'd be better than what we're doing. Because at least they had a method for paying for it that didn't involve personal property tax. And there was supposed to be a common schools endowed fund to keep the schools running. So all of this stuff, if we did even the state constitution, which I got to say, Indiana's constitution is one of the better ones. It's not quite as fiery and cool as like Tennessee's, for instance, but nobody's really, nobody's doing their constitutions. And that's where you think, what is our, what is the fundamental touchstone for any of this, whether it's legal or whether it's moral? Because you're asking me about moral stuff that I don't like talking about because I don't know. I guess I I have enough understanding of my own failings that I know that my judgments on this are going to be based on, I was born in 1958. Yeah, I think that's, I identify with that a lot. Like it's, how do you know what's right for other people? You can't be totally sure and you know how impactful it can be. But at the same time, you want to make sure there's justice, but whose side of justice, right? I have no cotton with, or whatever the phrase is, right? Like with the current thing. That's a trendy thing to say. Oh, it's the current thing to support this. And I live in a neighborhood where June is outdo your neighbor with your flag month. And it's just every June has been like a new flag to up one up the other, right? Fine. Live your life the way you want. They're doing it to 
make a statement. It's not actually about justice. It's to look trendy. That's the stuff that I have no regard for. Like, body dysmorphia, though, is a hugely painful thing for somebody to go through. Whether it's anorexia or gender dysphoria, like these are very, and I sympathize a lot with anybody that struggles with this issue because of my personal experience. And that's what I'd say is go have experiences with people outside of your thing and not you, because I know you get this. You come at it from a very humane way and understanding way, which I think has always endeared me to you compared to a lot of other right-leaning folks in my circles where it's just, this is right and wrong and I don't care about the fallout just get over it and act the way that I want you to. But you can see how people, especially old people like me, who you don't even have to be that old to remember when young people were eating Tide Pods. <laughs> I was old when that was happening. <laughs> yeah. So but see, that's like nobody was actually eating Tide Pods, but it just, that's one of those things where that's what I think about this is there's nobody who is six and transitioning in America. I don't think it's legal. And I don't think there's a doctor that now 14. Yes. But you'll see people who will say, oh, I don't want four year olds transitioning. And that just you're like it has happened at eight years old, okay. at eight years old. And so that that's where, you know, this is what makes it difficult where we have a different set of standards for this particular issue than we have for anything else. And so we understand that kids are kids in lots of different ways. So we're not going to give them the car keys. We're not going to, they're not going to be going off to battle for the United States. Now they're kids and we have them in schools for a specific reason. Why do we have public schools? We have already an idea about the way kids work in every other respect. This is a case, in my mind anyway, where we have removed some, a big fence, really. It's just, there, there are adults and there are kids. And it's not just humans. This is like puppies versus dogs. It's all throughout our animal kingdom. And you have, even in insects, where they have transitional phases and they're an entirely different creature when they come out of the chrysalis. And that's where... We have, for this particular circumstance, changed the rules pretty rapidly, pretty dramatically. And that's, that is, of course, disturbing to a lot of, you know, maybe just old people like me. Maybe it's a misunderstanding of what the numbers actually have been. For much of my life, the sort of gestalt was that 2 3% of our population was gay or in some way sexually heterodox, where they're just not, they're not normal in some kind of way. Now you can modify those numbers if you start talking about straight people who have weird things going on. And maybe if you want to get granular about it, nobody has the same sort of sexual preferences as everybody else. And maybe it's just so granular that we have no business even trying to assess such things because as much study has been going on, a lot of it has been has been bad studies. Even at Indiana University, the Kinsey Institute, a lot of that research has been discredited and called corrupt. We don't know that much about our numbers enough to say this is what's normal. This is where the bell curve is. I don't know. But I have a hard time believing that with the number of transitions that have been going on now, the number of people that have, re have regretted going through their transitions, that we're doing this right. And if we're not doing it right, what do we do about it? Because 
people are being harmed. I also think it's part of it's people find community in it. I think it's a lot like the trench coat kids when I was in school. They're on a spectrum and they're making choices because they're trying to find belonging. And I think that's well, part of you, secular culture. That's, it, but it's also a part of they've done studies on animals and drugs where they find that animals that are satiated in other respects and have like society are not going to be sipping the cocaine bottle as much as when they're alone. You put a rat by itself in a cage and it's easy to demonstrate drug addiction very quickly. But you have drugs available to mice and rats where they've got more society and they've got social engagement and they can have a rich life with exercise and sex and all the things that these little rats and mice want. They don't see drug addiction. They actually go to the regular food and water and ignore the drugs. And we've seen in lots of cases where drug addiction in humans is often prefigured by social disorder of some kind. And if you take that by extension and see that, okay, there's something wrong going on here. And whether this is gender dysphoria as a primary thing or whether it's a secondary, whether it's a symptom of something else, maybe that something else is what makes them want to commit suicide. Maybe it's the fact that they don't feel like they have any belonging. Maybe they have a bad family life. And those are the things we can address. Those are the things that we used to have more social organizations like Kiwanis and Rotary Clubs and things for like Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts, for kids and families to find belonging and social engagement with. And they've been outcompeted by schools. Their collection plates were voluntary. Governments is not. And we've used school as the replacement for a lot of things that used to happen in local cultures where they had local gymnasiums that were not associated with school. So you didn't have to be in school in order to play basketball and football and all of that stuff. And we've concentrated and centralized an awful lot under political umbrellas where I think we should have not. And that, I think, what happened with the school consolidations starting after World War II and accelerating through the 50s killed off a lot of small towns. It killed off a lot of what was the sort of the park builders and the, the people who were the volunteer firemen. And, and a lot of things that were social have been replaced by things that are professional. And that's had a lot of implications. All right, Andy Horning, author of Relighting the Torch. Thank you so much. You've been more than generous with your time. I'm going to have you back really soon because I hopefully you'll be up in my neck of the woods when we can stand in person to do this in person. Go check out the book. It's really good. As you can tell, Andy's very thoughtful, very educated. He knows a lot of stuff, and it really comes through in the book, and I'm greatly enjoying it. So please check out Relighting the Torch. Andy, shameless self-promotion time. Where can people follow you? What would you like them to know? Oh, it's, I'm easy to find on Google, but I'm going to be running for the U.S. Senate in 2024. So Senate.com, And of course, my books are available on Amazon. So if you look for either The Truth About Excelsior or Relighting the Torch on Amazon, you'll find them there. And it's double Kindle points day. So I, I got Excelsior <laughs> while we were talking. Thank you, Andy Horning. I appreciate it. Thank you. It's been great. I'll see you soon. All right, thanks so much for listening here on The Chris Spangle Show. We appreciate you. Please share this. If you learned something, if you found it interesting, that's the best way that you can help me and my guests grow and continue to spread the message. Thanks for listening here on The Chris Spangle Show. 
This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.